If only Jonah ended at chapter 3. We could put a bow on this sucker and go to sleep in peace. Okay, Jonah's called back from rebellion. Through his five-word sermon, an entire nation repents. The sailors in the earlier part of the story are now counted as God's people. All is well. That'd be such a great ending. We'd all feel so good about the story of Jonah. This is what happens when you run away. Everybody gets saved. Something like that. I don't know, okay? It's, it's about so much more than the fish. See, I knew it. And look, all these people who turn to God, that's such a great ending. But then chapter 4 begins. Everyone we have met in the story is now worshiping God, even the cattle. And chapter 4 begins with this line. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What? I mean, for y'all who were here last week, I mean, what? If you just read the last line even of Jonah chapter 3, you will get this. Like, it, it's, it, ring, it rung true as like a cool thing to all kinds of people in history. It rings cool kind of to us probably, I would assume. But Jonah's displeased and angry. What a strange turn. Why is Jonah upset? And even more strange is the fact that here is, only, is one of only two books in the entire Bible that end with a question. There's two books in the Bible that end with a question. Uh, Casey, would you throw that, the, the last line up? This is just verse 11, okay? Should I not pity, this is God's voice talking to Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh? The word there is compassion. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Have you laid in bed before and pondered that, friends? Shouldn't God pity a nation in which there are 120,000 people and cows? Have you just laid in bed and thought that? Because it's a Bible verse, right? I mean, like even reading your Bible, like, yeah, this is the question I ought to think about. What a fascinating ending. This is the ending of Jonah. And it's all the more interesting because the other book of the Bible, which ends in a question, is the prophet Nahum, which is a shorter book, believe it or not, even shorter than Jonah. And it, too, is a story about a prophecy against Nineveh. We can't get into all that, but cutting room floor. If you want to talk about that, I'll be here after the service. Okay. This entire story, though, not just the ending, is a surprise. Okay. We've read of like waves and, a, and fish and a plant and a worm and the winds and even a boat obeying God. A motley crew of sailors out on the Mediterranean Sea worshiping God and making vows to Him. Enemies of God's people repenting of their sin. An enemy king acting like Jesus. In fact, the only person in the entire story, the only thing in the entire story which is disobedient is the prophet sent by God. Everything in the story is kind of turned on its head. All the stock figures are behaving differently than you might expect. The enemies of God's people repent and worship God and Jonah is not pleased. And so he cries out to God, telling him, I knew you were going to do this. I knew it. I knew you were compassionate and gracious. I knew you were slow to anger. I knew that you were abounding in love. I knew you were going to forgive. That's why I ran away. Because I knew you were going to forgive. 
In this short prayer, Jonah references himself with I or me nine times. It's a very self-centered prayer. Now, in chapter 1, if you go back to the beginning, we aren't told why Jonah ran away. Okay, we're left to guess that. The most obvious reason would be, for sure, that the capital city of the enemy empire is a pretty terrifying place for a dude to go. Maybe Jonah ran away because he was, like, afraid for his own life. That would make some sense. Maybe he ran away because these people were exceedingly wicked. God literally is, Jonah, I want you to go talk to people whose evil is so bad that it's rising up to me and I need them to stop and I'm going to destroy it if they don't. That wouldn't be like, sweet, let me pack my bag, you know? But here at the end of Jonah, we actually do find out why Jonah ran away. We get let in on it. And he ran away not because he was scared for his own life or because he didn't want to be the messenger of destruction. He ran away because he knew God was going to be forgiving Is that surprising to you that someone wouldn't want God to be forgiving? Why was this so hard for Jonah? Why did it displease him and make him angry? Maybe a part of it is his ego. Really, I mean, he told all these people, he spent three days telling all these people they're going to be destroyed, and then they weren't. And so maybe he just, you know, maybe he just was like, "Uh, I don't like being wrong after God, you told me to do all this, this, this thing, you know? Maybe he just doesn't like his enemies. Maybe he didn't want people to get mercy. Maybe he wanted them to get justice. Is there anyone that you hope gets what they deserve? Is there anyone that you hope doesn't get off the hook? Maybe Jonah was thinking that. I can't help but reflect on the fact that just a generation or two later, a generation or two after Jonah, the Ninevites, new king, new generation, the Ninevites actually go over and destroy the northern tribes of Israel, and it's atrocious. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel are gone from that moment on in the history of the world. They become the Samaritans, really. So maybe what Jonah saw is himself participating in his own people's destruction. Get this, okay? Because if God doesn't destroy the Ninevites, then one day soon they would rise up and destroy Israel. And so maybe this is one of the main meditations in the whole story. How could God use a prophet of his own people to save a nation which would utterly destroy his people? It's not too hard to imagine why these kinds of mo- any of these kinds of motives for why Jonah was displeased when God was merciful to Nineveh. I don't want to be made a fool of. Maybe God calls us to forgive and, and take the meek and low road or to decenter ourselves in a moment, and we resist because we'll look like idiots. That doesn't seem like above us. Maybe we want someone to get what we think they deserve. So even though God wants redemption and salvation for everybody, we might struggle and have a hard time imagining that some people and circumstances are redeemable. Most vulnerable of all, what if God invites us to participate in some act of love 
which would bring about our own destruction. Can you imagine how wild that would be? For God to ask His people to like give up their own life? To lay down their lives for the sake of others? Like how nuts would it be for Him to invite His people to participate in a reconciling work that costs them? And yet, the disciples of Jesus like 400 years, 500 years after this, saw that principle as a foundational aspect of their allegiance to their king. They understood that some kind of daily dying to self was integral to love and to mission, that some kind of cost is required to lift other people up. One of Jesus' best friends remembers him saying that there is no greater love than someone who lays down their life for their friend. Another one of his friends remembers him saying that in the kingdom of Jesus, God's people love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. And Jonah was coming face to face with this kind of reality before Jesus started preaching this in what we would call the New Testament some 2,000 years ago. Here we're confronted with something like the kingdom of God, a kingdom where Jonah is a vessel of redemption for his enemies. Make me a vessel. Make me an offering. Make me whatever you want me to be, except a, a, a vessel of redemption for my enemies, God. Look, Jonah was self-centered, rebellious, myopic, and we'll soon see he had more compassion for a plant than for hundreds of thousands of people, okay? The story is not painting him in a good light. But I think it's too easy to simply throw him under the bus at this moment because what if instead this story isn't about like, look how cool God is, Jonah sucks, okay? I think that's probably true. But what if one of the things we are intended to do, one of the reasons the people of God have held on to this story meditated on it, understood God to be communicating a timeless truth through it. It's because we are invited to recognize our own voices and our own tendencies to adopt Jonah's posture in response to God's saving work. To see ourselves in the place of Jonah, thinking about who God might want to extend mercy to through us, and how we're going to respond to the bedrock truth that He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. So Jonah, after this happens, Jonah goes up on a hill, sets up a camp, and in his anger he just looks out over the city of Nineveh wondering what's going to come of it. And while this is happening, our merciful God grows this plant up over Jonah to offer him some shade from the Middle Eastern sun. And it's a setup. The whole thing is a setup for a teaching moment for Jonah. Jonah had already told God he'd rather die than watch this happen to Nineveh. And because we know it's a teaching moment because this whole God does all these things in rapid succession. He anoints and appoints all these things. Uh, and then we find him revisiting this question again. But So God appoints this plant to grow up, and then he, he, he calls this worm, something like a big black caterpillar thing, um, to come and take a few bites of the stalk of this plant. And under the beating sun and the dry conditions, this plant withers in like 24 hours. 
And then, just like God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah and a plant to grow and a worm to eat, He appoints a scorching eastern wind to blow in the face of Jonah. And as he bakes under the eastern sun, Jonah looked at that withered plant and it says, Jonah had compassion on the plant. Compassion. The same word used to describe the character of God, the God who is gracious and compassionate, the same word that God has for the people of Nineveh, Jonah has that for a dead plant that he knew for 24 hours. Jonah is angry for the compassion that God has for Nineveh and he reserves his own compassion for this dead plant and he weeps and he calls out to God in anger, I would rather die than live like this. Now get this, friends. Jonah wants a world where his enemies receive judgment and he receives mercy. Jonah wants a world where his enemies get judged, but he gets mercy. See, he'd rather die than see his enemies forgiven, and he'd rather die than see God withhold mercy. He wants God to judge others, but give him mercy. God says, do you have a right to be angry for that plant, Jonah? The plant which I grew and provided and was there just for a day, and Jonah doubles down. I do. I do have a right to be angry, and I'm angry enough to die. You have compassion on that plant, but you have a problem with me having compassion for 120,000 people in that city down there? Do you think that you have the right to tell me that I can't have compassion on them when you have compassion on this plant? It's a ridiculous story, y'all, okay? I mean, this is ridiculous, right? It's a wild story. It's a wild kind of juxtaposition or comparison. Like, who would love a plant more than 120,000 people. I mean, that's fantastic, right? I mean, you read that story, and it's like Jacob giving up his birthright for a bowl of stew. Who would love a plant more than 120,000 people? Think about how crazy that comparison is. He was more sad about his own comfort than an entire city perishing. He was more concerned about this small material thing than all of these people. Who would ever do that? Who would ever be more concerned about their own comfort than the lives of others? Who would be more concerned with material comforts than the redemption of others? Do I ever do that? Do you? I mean, is it really wild when we think about it? The ending of this prophetic book doesn't end with a nice story of redemption. Golly, it's, this is just highlighting one of the things that I love about this library we call the Bible. It is so surprising. What kind of people keep these stories about themselves? We're the only bad guy is one of us. This isn't like this, this nice, tidy story that ends with like, and look, God called him back and everybody was redeemed and this is so great. It ends with a question, driving home tension. Is our heart aligned with God? Do we want what God wants? Are our, our, our priorities and our, our loves ordered 
like citizens of the kingdom of God? How do we feel and what do we think about what God wants for people in this world? What if God wants to have compassion and mercy? And what if, what if that compassion and mercy is for our enemies? What is our response going to be to that? It would be a good exercise to imagine whoever is your enemy. Whoever you think is as far from God as it could possibly be. And what if God wants to extend mercy and compassion to them? How do you feel about that? What do we care about more than mercy and the salvation of other people? Do we have the right to criticize God for having compassion on others? Brothers and sisters, God wants His people, that would be you and, you and me if we're in this room together, God wants His people like Jonah to be instruments and agents of His reconciling work in the world. His heart is for the salvation of everyone. And for that to happen, mercy needs to triumph over judgment. Are we going to be people who don't just cry out for mercy on our own behalf, but on the behalf of others? Or like Jonah, are we going to say, mercy for me, judgment for them? God promises that one day we will be kept safe from sorrow and suffering. He promises that. But now, right now, we are those who share in the sufferings of Christ. The suffering which comes as a natural part of loving others in a fallen world. We share those sufferings in order that we might participate and share in His glory one day. And what does it mean to share in His glory, but to have a share in all these people who turn toward Him because of His mercy and grace? All of these people who will one day stand on, on the earth made new, in bodies resurrected, right alongside the Ninevites and everyone else God has redeemed, clothed in glory and embracing them as friends, recognizing that Jesus is able to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. He's inviting us to participate in that kind of work now. The story of Jonah displays God's heart for the world and reminds us that we are called to share God's heart, not just His name. Even if you are on the run from God, He is not far from you. You are never too far gone for God to redeem. God finishes the work He begins and He is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping love for generations and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. His heart is for the redemption of the world, and He's inviting you and me into it. This is the story of Jonah for us.